Hey everybody, we want to go ahead and get started as you begin to eat, and please continue to eat, we want to get rolling. Uh, my name is Zach Hopkins, and I'd like to welcome you to the lunch hosted by the Westminster Society, and today we're going to be hearing from Joey Sherrod, who is the pastor of discipleship at Single Mountain Presbyterian Church in Presbyterian Southeast. He's going to be sharing with us ancient wisdom today from St. Augustine, and uh, we're really looking forward to that. Um, what the Westminster Society is, very briefly, is just uh, an informal networking group here in the EPC that is seeking to sponsor and host and put on these different events that provide uh, intellectually stimulating and confessionally grounded conversations and presentations to bless you and confirm you in your ministry as you uh, realize that there are lots of people who are very interested in these types of topics and uh, bless us as we continue to grow and minister in Christ's name. So I'm glad you're here. Let me pray, and we'll get started that way. Heavenly Father, we thank you at the end of what's already been uh, a long week for this opportunity, uh, as we share this food, uh, to both be nourished uh, of body and soul. Uh, so, Lord, would you bless this time? Bless Joey as he speaks to us, and uh, may we have our hearts drawn out to know and love your Son, the Lord Jesus, more deeply and serve him more faithfully in our local context. Bless this time now, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Zach. Um, again, my name is Joey Sherrod. I am a teaching elder at Signal Mountain Presbyterian Church uh, just outside of Chattanooga. And uh, it's good to be with you guys uh, today. And it's really good that this is like, this is a graveyard shift. It's Friday afternoon. You guys are tired. I get it. Uh, but I, we're going to make this worth your while, I do think, because I think Augustine has, um, has something to say to, to each of us, whether you are here as a teaching elder, ruling elder, as an observer, he, um, he does bring to our moment uh, wisdom um, that uh, will resource us for the task ahead of us. I will say I am just profoundly grateful for the Westminster Society, the work that they do here. And as the Westminster Society began, I was just so encouraged um, by the fact that an institution like this exists within our denomination, uh, just for a number of reasons. Uh, but two that come to mind, first is that um, theology uh, belongs to the entire church. And one of the things I particularly appreciate about these gatherings and, and significantly the one that we had in Memphis uh, last year was the desire for this to be not just for teaching elders, but for ruling elders as well, to know that uh, they too share this task of theological leadership within uh, the church. Uh, and second, I appreciate because the, the questions that we that are in front of us, they are multifaceted, uh, you know, they're, they're cultural, they're sociological, but they're also never less than theological as well. And so uh, those kinds of answers uh, that are sociological, cultural techniques, whatever they are, they, we shouldn't ignore those kind of things, um, but we shouldn't forget that uh, we, are, we are proclaiming the gospel. Uh, that has been given to us, entrusted to us, and we should protect it uh, and, and strengthen our own witness as we look back to the past so that we can uh, move forward as well. I will say um, in a way that uh, perhaps is uh, not intuitive uh, for those of you who have actually seen a copy of The City of God, or perhaps if you have a copy of The City of God that 
you um, is on your shelf uh, so that your people or your friends or whoever are can think that you've read the city of God, um, but you haven't. But that this text actually belongs to the people of God. This past year, I was a part of a reading group through an institution from Reformed Theological Seminary called the Paideia Center for Theological Discipleship. And we read uh, a group of 20 people from uh, lawyers to stay-at-home parents to uh, ministry leaders to even a couple of pastors were there. Um, we read the entire City of God together in ways that were profoundly helpful for us as we think about our work and our mission. And so let me just encourage you um, to, as whether you're a pastor, as a teaching elder or a ruling elder, um, that this is this really does... Um, your people are hungry for more often. Um, and so if you give them that, uh, they, uh, they will, they'll take it, they'll eat it, and they'll find it good. Um, let, me, uh, let me pray for us again. Bob, pray for us with uh, a prayer from Augustine himself uh, that may be familiar uh, to you to begin our time. So let me pray for us using these words from Augustine's Confessions. Great are you, O Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is your power, and of your wisdom there is no end. And man, being a part of your creation, desires to praise you. Man, who bears about with him his mortality, the witness of his sin, even the witness that you resist the proud. Yet man, this part of your creation, desires to praise you. You move us to delight in praising you, for you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Amen. Who was Augustine of Hippo? Maybe just a few words of introduction for us uh, as we get started, and um, that will help sort of frame why I think Augustine is particularly helpful for us today. Augustine uh, was a man born uh, in North Africa. Uh, he spent a brief season of his life in Rome, uh, and that's uh, a, a significant part of that is captured in his own spiritual autobiography, The Confessions. But uh, he was an African. And so in ways that uh, remind us about what it means to confess the Catholic Church that we are a part of, this is a witness to the African heritage of our theological uh, tradition and heritage. He was a man who had an immense amount of learning, uh, was extremely intelligent, and yet worked out that learning for the sake of of the flock that had been entrusted to him. Uh, we remember Augustine as you know, someone who had important things to say, not only for the theological tradition that we're a part of, so it's often said that uh, the history of Western theology is a footnote on the theology of Augustine, uh, but he was also important in terms of giving certain philosophical categories for uh, how we think about language and things like that, but all of that was worked out because he was first and foremost a pastor. Uh, he ministered to a specific flock in a specific place, uh, in a place that really was the Bible belt of the Roman Empire in a lot, in a lot of ways, uh, among men and women who, um, who were seeking to, uh, to love Jesus better, and among a lot of theological conflict uh, as well. He wrote the City of God in response to a pastoral question that a Roman official asked of him, a man named Marcellinus. Uh, asked him a question because after the fall of the sack of Rome in 410, uh, people began to blame the Rome's decline on Christians, that Rome had forsaken the old gods, and by forsaking the old gods, they had lost this season of prosperity and security and safety 
that they had known. And so Augustine writes this response to that. Uh, probably more than Marcellinus knew he was going to get, um, but he wrote in response to that. The sack of Rome uh, was a uh, just sort of a, an earthquake event within uh, the Western uh, the Western world of its time. It's probably akin uh, to something like um, 9-11 in many ways. And I mean that in a couple of ways. One, that you can sort of mark what happened before and what happened after based on that event, but also in the, to the fact that you know, it didn't affect many people directly. So even if you were in Rome when, when Rome was sacked by the Goths as they came in, uh, you might not have known that it happened until later because it was a very focused sort of attack. But that event... Um, changed the way that Rome thought about itself. Rome had known itself to be an empire without match for 800 years. Uh, and yet this event um, made Rome think about who it was and perhaps that its days were numbered uh, as well. But out of that, Augustine is also writing in a number of ways that I think echo our own time and our own days. He was writing um, what he felt was a time of transition that things were changing uh, around him. He didn't know what was emerging on the other side of that, um, but he knew that in many ways an old way was passing and a new way was coming. And indeed, that is what happened. I, you know, we also don't know what times we are given to live in today, but perhaps maybe it feels like there's a transition that's taking place in our time, whatever you want to call it, uh, late modernity or or whatever it is that you think that is that we're experiencing. It's not given to us to know, but um, certainly feels as if the feet, uh, the ground underneath our feet uh, is shifting. He also ministered in a time of political uncertainty, that with the fall of Rome and its sack, with the rise of a new empire in the Goths, that there was a sense that certain stabilities that he, that before they thought they could take for granted, that those things uh, we're no longer there. Augustine, in a way that I think is unique um, to us, understood that his one of his central conflicts was not with other Christians in terms of theological formulations, but was with a pagan world uh, around him. That the, the, the unbelief that was around him, the other gods, was someone who he knew he had to be in conversation with in ways that I think are helpful for us to think as we move into increasingly uh, perhaps post-Christian times as well. Also, he lived in a time of decadence. Uh, Rome was declining. Uh, that was evident that its military might, its political sophistication, all those things, um, they were coming to, to an end. And so um, he, he sought to strengthen churches in light of that for what might come next. And so we can look to him. We can look back to Augustine in the same way that we can look to our confessional standards as well because there's this great image that's in Jamie Smith's book, uh, On the Road in Augustine, that he talks about how, what it looks like to be, uh, to do sort of, to do, to think well is to, is to sit in a rowboat where you're facing backwards as you row, even as you're moving forwards. And that's how I've found Augustine helpful in my own life. Uh, and, and ministry. I also think Augustine is really helpful because he, um, he lived in a complex world 
with lots of ideas around him, with lots of challenges in front of him, and yet he could articulate things with uh, simplicity as well. And that's, that's our calling as those who are entrusted to leave a church, lead the church as well. So what can Augustine teach us? Um, he can teach us, I think, particularly as we think about what it looks like to proclaim the gospel and to live faithfully in the times that are entrusted to us. Three things, uh, I think. I'm a pastor. There's going to be three, three points, but not a poem at the end of this. Um, but three things. So number one, how to understand. Number two, how to persuade. And number three, how we might live faithfully. So those three things. First, how to understand. And that's really an important sort of precondition to the second point about what it looks like to persuade well in the times that are given to us. The work of persuasion begins with the sometimes slow work of understanding. Um, there's this wonderful sort of almost a side in the city of God where Augustine says, um, the thing about heretics is that they're impatient. They want to resolve difficult issues and questions with simple answers like the Trinity, for example. Let's, let's resolve that by saying one and three cannot coexist. They're impatient. And he says what the people of God should be is patient in how we answer questions. And so he models for us a patient understanding of the world uh, around him. He also models it in, in that he, he had imbibed the culture around him. He had lived it. He had drunk deeply of it. He had knew what it meant to be a pagan. He knew what it meant to exhaust all the resources and options in front of him and ultimately to turn to Jesus. So he understood the world around us. So how did he understand? Well, he under, what Augustine did was he mastered the sources of pagan theology uh, and culture. Augustine, when you read the city of God, um, you see a man who has just an incredible amount of knowledge at his fingertips. And in fact, if we want to know why it is that we remember certain people and have sources for certain things, it's because Augustine gives us those sources. We can look back to Augustine first because he knew them and in a, in a sort of a pre-literate, pre-printing press age, remembered them. He could call to mind passages. He was a student of Roman history. He had read the works of the Roman historian Sallust, uh, Lucan. Um, he understood how Rome thought about itself, how the world around him thought about uh, itself. How, and he also understood what Rome actually was. He understood that the popular story of Rome, the popular myth, was actually much messier than that. So he could read someone like Sallust and and when Roman, when his pagan sort of opponents wanted to look back and talk about the glory days of Rome and how good things used to be, he could look back and say, you know what, there was decadence even, even then. Under When you thought things were good, things were actually not as good as you thought they were. So he understood and could articulate to his pagan interlocutors, to those he was seeking to persuade, he could, he could understand better than they could what was actually true. He was a student of Roman life, about the details and the, the, the practices that formed Romans. He knew what it, what it was like to be a Roman with the, the theater, uh, this, this way that people would pay homage to their gods with these graphic and um, debaucherous uh, plays that would be, would be put before people. He understood how that formed people. 
Uh, he understood what it was like to be a pagan because he studied the culture around him and could see the holes and the, the deformation that happened through those things. He was a student uh, of Roman narratives. He knew that uh, Rome thought about itself in a certain way, that there was a certain narrative of, of progress and of Rome's invincibility. And it's because he knew that he could speak to that culture in a way that was winsome and persuasive and thoughtful uh, and ultimately was a part of the work of converting that culture to, uh, to himself. I said winsome. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hot word right now, so I shouldn't say winsome. Um, he understood the deep story uh, around him. So if you read Augustine's City of God, the first 10 books... Uh, which are more of his sort of uh, apologetic approach to the culture around him. The books 11 through 22 are his own biblical theology uh, and his own instruction about how to live, although there's a little bit of both happening in each one. Um, he, he quotes Virgil sort of offhand constantly so that his hearers, who would have been familiar with Virgil's poetry and, and that myth, they could, they could see that they were talking to someone who understood, understood them and yet was using that story in a very different way to a very different end than they, than they might expect. City of God begins with a quotation of Virgil, the poet of Rome's founding. Virgil told the story of Aeneas and how out of the, sort of the wreckage of, of Troy, he carried on his back um, uh, a new vision for a new place called Rome and the certain self-understanding of who Rome was, this idea from the very first paragraph of the, the, of the book of the city of God, to spare the conquered and to subdue the proud. He called that to mind, and yet in the very next sentence, he says, if you think that Rome was founded to subdue the pride, then you should look in the mirror and realize that pride and arrogance is at the very identity of the Roman Empire. Uh, and that you will need to be humbled if you are to see yourself truly and to understand what it is that you are called to. He was also uh, a student of Roman character, of Roman virtue. Uh, he knew that there was a reason that Rome was as great as it was, that Rome was as great as it was because it had a particular vision about what it meant to be uh, in the case of Rome, always uh, a, a virtuous man. Uh, and that that vision had actually given Rome its, its strength. There's a, a story that he calls to mind at the beginning of, um, of the city of God that um, would have been familiar to all Romans of the, the general Regulus who's captured during the First Punic War. And um, when he's asked to, to surrender, uh, he, he sticks his hand into a flame. Uh, and the people around him, you know, are sort of shocked and awed. And he keeps the flame, his hand in the flame, until finally uh, the, the Punic capturers say, you know, take it out. We'll let you go, and you can go negotiate. And then he goes back and negotiate, and tells uh, the Romans to refuse no negotiations. And he goes back um, and is, is sort of voluntarily goes back as an individual and is killed by his Punic capturers. It's this vision of, uh, of Roman courage. Um, that's what made Rome great. Uh, but what he also sees is that this really, wasn't, this really wasn't true virtue at the end of the day. This was instead what he calls, or what people have called after him, glittering vices. Uh, this is uh, because true virtue can only happen when it's directed towards what is true. 
towards the holy God, uh, towards faith in Jesus Christ. And he, he talks about that in a quote that's on um, uh, your sheet that hopefully you have a copy of. If you need another copy, there's some up here. He says, for the sake of this one vice, that is love of praise. What Romans love was to, to be praised, to have glory. Uh, these men suppress the love of riches or the love of comfort or whatever it is and many other vices. And so he sees Rome better than Rome sees itself because he understands Rome. Um, that's, that's what Augustine shows us about what it looks like to understand the world around him. And so we might ask ourselves in the various places that the Lord has put us, what it look like for us? in the particular season and context and callings that we have been placed in to, un to really try to understand the cultures that we have been placed in. So we could ask ourselves a number of things. We could ask ourselves, what, what are the central stories and narratives of our own culture? What is it that our neighbors, when they think about the kind of story that their life will play out, how do they imagine themselves when they think about this country that we have been placed in providentially? How do they think about our own future? And we'll probably find that there are, you know, at least politically, two different narratives, um, but even many more than that. And we might think about what it looks like to proclaim the gospel in that type of place. We could also ask ourselves, what are the vices that mask themselves as virtues uh, around us? So we might think that, you know, one of the things that is amazing about the country that we've been placed in uh, is our, our focus on being entrepreneurial and seeking advancement. Uh, and the many ways which in the last 20 years we've seen an incredible amount of advancement in convenience and things like that. But we might also ask, like, how, how, does, that, how does that deform us in many ways? That this, what looks like a virtue, actually we're increasingly seeing men and women become, become uh, broken on the other side of that as they have less time um, for rest, that they ignore their limits, um, that to the end of the, the virtue of being entrepreneurial, not a classical virtue, of course, but to the end of, of that end that we see men and women being swallowed up by their own vices as well. We also ask what it would look like to master the histories and the texts and the stories of the world uh, around us. Um, what it would look like to understand them better than our neighbors might understand them. And so we could even correct our neighbors when they talk about and refer to one thing. We could say, well, I've, I've read that book. And, and this is actually what it says. Um, I think a great example of this book, of that sort of process, is a book by Alan Noble that I would certainly commend to you, uh, You Are Not Your Own, um, which is a fantastic book that sort of helps us imagine what it is that one of the big narratives uh, around us, that, that I, I can belong to myself, um, and that um, by belonging to myself, I can be happy, that I can find happiness. And he shows us in that book ways in which many of our neighbors, and to be very honest, um, ourselves as well, uh, are exhausted under the weight of having to form our own identities. Um, so I would uh, commend to us that work, what it looks like to understand uh, well the world around us. Then Augustine, he shows us how to persuade. Um, he shows us how to persuade. Uh, this was actually, as our own group in Chattanooga was reading this book, 
this was actually one of the things that was most remarkable about Augustine as we read this book together is that he actually tried to persuade the people around him. I think um, many of us have fundamentally given up on that. We think that uh, our, our neighbors are unpersuadable um, and so uh, why engage them in conversation because there's, there's no hope for anything. I think Augustine uh, shows us uh, a desire to actually persuade those around us um, rather than simply hurling a criticism or name calling or whatever it is that we might fall back on when we are frustrated about our inability to do that. Um, it's just important to know that Augustine's desire to persuade people, the convictions that form that for him are fundamentally theological convictions that come from his doctrine of creation. Um, that Augustine thinks that we should persuade people uh, because, um, because of the fact that we all share common desires built on a creation that was created good. Augustine knew what it was like to have sort of a fundamentally um, dualistic understanding of the universe. He had come out of a sort of religious heresy sect called Manichaeism. And Manichaeans thought that you could sort of divide the world up into, um, into sort of two almost equal forces, good and bad, um, or light and evil, light and darkness. Uh, and because of that, there was really no, there was no sort of overlap. It was just fundamentally conflict between these two forces. And part of his own story of coming to faith that's told in the Confessions is the story of him rejecting his Manichae background. And he came to believe that um, all of creation was, was initially good uh, and that God had made th all things good, very good, uh, and that what evil was, was a, a departure, a diminishment. Uh, he calls it a privation of things that are fundamentally good. Uh, and so even in, even in sort of the worst malformed desire, the, an evil action, there is, there's a seed of, uh, of something that's good, a good desire, uh, uh, something that has just been misdirected or misordered or, or something uh, like that. He talks about this in a quote that I won't read to you when he talks about the doctrine of creation in book 12 of that, that all things in their right place are good, uh, that there's nothing that can be totally evil, because if it was totally evil, it would, it would, have, it would lose its anchoring in creation. It, would, it, it wouldn't exist. Um, and so he talks about this in a quote that I will read for you from uh, book 12, when he talks about you know, when we might say things like we often misquote the Bible, you know, money is the root of all evil. That's not, that's not what the scripture says. Is love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. And so this is what he says in book 12. He says, avarice or greed is not fault in gold. It is rather a fault in the person who loves gold perversely and so has abandoned righteousness which ought to be ranked incomparably higher than gold. And he says loves perversely. He thinks you can love gold, but to love it perversely is to love it in its wrong place, in its wrong order. Anyone who loves the good of any nature at all, even if he should happen to attain it, 
himself becomes evil in that very good and wretched in that he is deprived of a greater good. And of course, our greatest good is our God who can satisfy every desire and give us all that we want. And this determines how Augustine tries to persuade people because he understands that when his opponents are sort of arguing for something else, that they're, they're departing uh, from, uh, from an actually good vision from that. They, they've misordered their love. They're trying to love something that should be loved, but they're trying to love it in the wrong way, out of its order. And so for Augustine, when he tries to persuade his opponents, it's fundamentally a therapeutic kind of action. And when we say therapeutic, I don't mean like in a psychological sense. I mean in the sense that you might have uh, a knee replacement and you go to therapy so that your knee begins to work in the way that it was originally designed to work. He, he tries to meet his opponents sort of on uh, the common ground that is a good creation created by God, and then to show them what it would look like to order their loves and their desires in the right way based on that. He, he helps us to see the good things that our opponents desire uh, and yet because he acknowledges evil as real, he can also very clearly say that that's, that's sin. And in fact, because it's a sin against loving a, a, a good God, that the, the, that the sin is our failure to fulfill the first half of the great commandment, uh, that we should speak clearly about how this is declining from what we were made for and what's at the heart of all sin, a failure to love our God well. Uh, so Augustine, when he writes the Confessions, um, what he's doing, in a sense, is he's helping his pagan friends uh, find themselves. You know, they, they think that they want justice, but they just don't know what justice really is. You know? They think that they want freedom, but they don't know what real freedom actually is. They think that what their lives are oriented are is towards love, and yet he wants to, to show them the ways in which their loves are disordered and to show them the, the real way of love as well. He's helping, his, he's helping people become themselves, truly and wholly and fully themselves. Um, and this is actually what Augustine says about himself when he, when he writes the Confessions. He, he is showing his own process of having lost himself and then finding, being found in himself uh, in Christ at the end of that book. And I'll just say as an aside, I mean, Keller, Tim Keller said this before, so fill out that part of your bingo card, um, that uh, what it is that um, Augustine shows for us is kind of the two sort of the two modes of maybe our own sort of apologetic approach. On the, on the one hand, there's sort of high criticism is what he calls it. So this sort of, you know, 30,000 foot like look at our culture that understands all the ways in which things are broken and things are um, out of order. But then also in the confessions, he shows us a, a personal narrative and we need both of those things. We need, we need testimony uh, and we need, we need cultural, theological, theologically grounded cultural criticism uh, as well. So what can we learn from Augustine here? Um, what might an attempt to persuade our neighbors look like? Well, we could, 
like Augustine does at the beginning of the book, uh, of the beginning of the city of God, is we could begin with concepts that it seems like we hold in common, uh, that both us and our neighbors care about. Like, we might both care about justice, um, but have different visions of what true justice is. We might both care about freedom, what, what it means to be truly free, and yet find ourselves on different ways of understanding that. And then we could, like Augustine does, show how inconsistent any sort of way of thinking about those things is when it's not grounded in the truths of Scripture and the reflection of theology, about how inconsistent pagan thinking is. I mean, you could say, as he does, uh, you know, something along the lines of, you know, what, what you want is freedom, but can't you see that the ultimate end of all of our modern projects of freedom is only deeper slavery around us? Can't you see that that's, that's where this ends? You, know, you can show your neighbors things like, you know, the, the statistic that was mentioned, I think it was on uh, maybe Wednesday morning uh, about how now 28% of people under the age of 17 have uh, had an experience of sexual abuse. And you could sort of trace that culturally back and say, you know, we have this value of sexual freedom in the culture around us. And yet look in the ways in which that through pornography and through other things has so malformed people's desires that now abuse of minors uh, is becoming more and more sort of on the rise around us. It's because we have, we have made this goal of sexual freedom in ways that are now, they're now polluting our culture around us. We could argue with our, our neighbors in that kind of way, saying that if you really want sexual freedom, don't you see that this is how, it's, this is how it happens? Freedom is to do the one thing that is good. It happens within the context of chastity outside of marriage, of sexual faithfulness within marriage between one man and one woman. And Augustine sees that you know, this Roman desire of what he calls the libido dominandi, it's the lust that dominates you know, the lust that dominates other people. This is what Rome wanted. Rome wanted to be able to dominate the world around it. They wanted to be able to say that we are supreme and there is no others like us. That in fact, that becomes the lust that dominates. That we become dominated by our own desires when they're not ordered properly. That the, the bigger that Rome got, the more anxious Rome became about its enemies and that um, Rome became more paranoid about its enemies. It, Rome, the more Rome got what it thought it wanted, the more, the more Rome suffered under the weight of those malformed desires. Um, he also shows us, I think, when it comes to persuasion, that persuasion is not, it's not fundamentally an intellectual activity. It's also a spiritual uh, understanding that undergirds it. And so he seeks to to, to, to show his uh, interlocutors that at the heart of what it is that they need is humility. That this, um, he says at the very beginning, again, this is the second paragraph of the City of God. He says, I know very well what efforts are needed to persuade the proud, how great the power of humility is. And so he shows them a posture of how uh, it's the greatness of the incarnation and the humility of Christ 
that has the answer to, um, to the many challenges that we face. But again, that persuasion is only possible because there is prior understanding. So Augustine shows us how to persuade. And then third and finally, um, Augustine shows us how to live. And that is not, I think, um, we might distinguish between the act of persuasion, um, but it's not a totally distinct thing from the act of persuasion is the faithfulness of Christian witness uh, in the world. And so Augustine, living in his own fractured and broken times, he shows us how to live well when perhaps we feel divided. It's not simply that we have answers to our neighbors, but we also live in the tensions of the broken world around us. Our times are confusing, clear thinking is rare. Augustine shows us how to live, and he does that in just four ways that, uh, that we'll talk about today, but he does it in a lot more than that. Um, first, he is pastorally sensitive uh, to the reality of suffering and how we might respond to that. Um, Augustine understood that he first needed to give a pastoral answer to the suffering that took place in Rome uh, when it was sacked by the Goths. And so that's actually where he begins in book one of the city of God, that he acknowledges the fact that there were people who lost their life, that there were people who under uh, the weight of the persecution that they were facing committed suicide. And so he tries to give a pastoral answer to that, that there were women who were raped when that took place. And so how might we provide a pastoral answer to them for their suffering as well? It's certainly the case for you and for me that we are becoming increasingly aware of the suffering that our own people have experienced and uh, continue experience coming out of the last two to three years. And he gives, again, therapeutic, not in the way that we would initially think about it, uh, uh, an answer to suffering uh, in a way that I think is pastoral, but yet allows people to see God's purposes within suffering. He, he shows how suffering can loosen our disordered attachments to the world around us and to set our, our hearts and our hope on heaven. Um, that it can humble us, that it can ask us, help us to ask questions about what it is that matters most and what it is, what desires will not disappoint us as well. And that one of the witnesses that Christians can have to the world around them is how it is that uh, a Christian embraces suffering in a, in a way that, that people who do not have faith in Christ cannot. They just don't have the resources um, to be able to face it with courage. And he, this is a quote, again from book one, he said, under the same affliction, the evil detest and blaspheme God, but the good praise and pray to him. What is really important then is not the character of the suffering, but rather the character of the sufferer. Stirred by the same motion, filth gives out a foul stench, but perfume a sweet fragrance. And that sweet fragrance uh, to sort of to reference Second uh, Corinthians chapter two, it can be sort of life to our neighbors as well. So he acknowledges, in the course of a very intellectual discussion about the world around us, that we need to have a pastoral response to suffering around us as well. Second, Augustine can 
help us to chasten our political hopes uh, around us. Rome uh, had positioned itself as um, you know the the power that you know would never would never end. You know that its 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 rule would be eternal, Roma eterna. Uh, it understood itself in that way, and many Christians uh, in his own day and time saw that through the conversion of Constantine, uh, that providentially God had aligned Christian emperors uh, with Christian the Christian faith as well, and so. Someone like Eusebius, who was an early church historian, uh, very closely tied uh, the expansion and growth of the Roman Empire with the expansion and growth of the Christian church as well. And Augustine thought that a little bit himself early on. Uh, but as he continues his career, sort of progresses, he, he realizes that, um, that to, to connect those things in two ways creates all sorts of problems as well. And in fact, it, it over-delivers and what he thinks that the Bible actually uh, says is possible to enjoy and to hope in uh, in the times that we've been given before the new creation and the new heavens and the new earth come as well. He, he, he basically, he tries to make the most persuasive argument for why a Christian could think that political hope uh, could bring happiness in this life. This is at the end of book five. And so he considers, uh, you know, the great Christian emperor Theodosius. Uh, I think Theodosius was referenced uh, in maybe either Sandy Wilson's talk or Vince Picote's talk about this, this man who um, was actually submitted to uh, Christian discipline by Augustine's theological mentor, Ambrose, and for, for killing, uh, sort of rashly killing 4,000 of his own citizens. And so uh, he was uh, refused access to the Lord's table. Um, and this is a man who, by earthly terms, he was the most powerful person uh, that the earth had ever known um, during that time because he was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Uh, and then he was also a Christian. He asked the question, well, is... Does uh, Emperor Theodosius, does he have happiness? And, he's, and what Augustine says is, not really, not by these earthly times, because he's filled with the responsibilities that have been given to him. He's filled with anxiety. Uh, he's, filled, he's burdened with decisions as well. Uh, as we know, he, has, he makes decisions um, that are sinful. And so even Emperor Theodosius, Theodosius, the, the best bet that we could have for happiness in this world through political power. Even he is only happy in hope. That's how Augustine calls him, happy in hope. So then what is the church called to do? So, so you sort of might flip that and say, well, then the church is not called to be engaged in political processes or, or anything else. Uh, around us. He gives at, uh, in book 19 this famous example of uh, for why Christians shouldn't be involved in politics of uh, a judge, a Christian judge, right, who um, is faced with a question of sentencing someone and who knows that there's a very good possibility that they will make the wrong decision doing that uh, and that they might condemn to death even someone who's in fact innocent. And so should Christians just wash their hands of that because it's just too messy? And the essence is no, that Christians are supposed to be engaged in the work of the world because we're supposed to make use of earthly goods 
for heavenly means. There's this extended quote that I'll, I'll read for you from book 19. He says, the church should make use of earthly and temporal things like a pilgrim. It is not captivated by them, not captivated by riches, not captivated by political power or anything, nor is deflected by them from the path that leads toward God, but is sustained by them. We, you know, it's, we are less distracted in our praise of God when we have clean water. We're less distracted by our praise of God and our service to him if there is religious freedom so that the gospel can be proclaimed. Um, it's sustained by them so that it may more easily bear the burdens of the corruptible body that weighs down the soul and may at least keep those burdens from getting any worse. Thus, use of the things necessary to this mortal life is common to both. So both Christians and non-Christians both use sanitation systems and, uh, and religious freedom and things like that, but each use them for its own very different end. The church uses on its progress to the, the heavenly city, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so he, he chastens our political hopes. Um, he, he helps us to both detach ourselves from our political aspirations and idolatries and yet also to remain engaged as well. Um, Augustine, he notices, he helps us to notice our deforming culture, the way that the world around us affects both Christians and non-Christians uh, as well. He, Augustine helps us to see how that takes place, and he gives us the resources to think how it is that we might um, pay attention to the ways that practices and institutions and things like that deflect us from our own pursuit of the heavenly city and how we might follow more faithfully. And then finally, uh, Augustine, in a way that some of the other Westminster uh, Society sessions have already said uh, better than I will in these next couple minutes, he helps us recognize that, um, that the church's work is never, um, you know, this is a season where it's time to build disciples and form Christians, or this is a season where uh, it's time to focus on evangelism, but that good teaching, preaching always does both at the same time, forming Christians and converting pagans. I mean, when you look at the city of God, um, some people have asked, like, you know, the question that people usually first ask of, of, of an ancient text, like, who was who this written for? Was this written for pagans or was this written for Christians? And I think Augustine's intention was that we would answer the question, yes, uh, it was written for both as well, that it would, on the one hand, be persuasive to non-Christians, helping them to find themselves uh, in the true story of Scripture, um, that, but that it would also be helpful to those who already follow Jesus, perhaps to those whose faith is wavering and who feel the kind of cultural forces around them, sort of moving them away from faith in Jesus Christ. That it might also give those same Christians the resources to engage and answer their neighbors as well. Uh, that it might increase their own faith in what it is that they believe um, so that they could have faith in Jesus Christ uh, themselves. And so I would, um, I'd commend uh, if if not the city of God to you, um, since you're all tired uh, this afternoon and probably not thinking the next thing you're going to do is go buy a copy of that or pick up the copy that's already on your shelf. But at least his, uh, his 
posture uh, and the way that he does this. And I also just might commend Augustine to you as uh, maybe another sort of mentor for yourself in your own sort of pastoral and leadership positions in a way that I think is similar to um, what was so helpful for me and moving for me about Zach's presentation on Thomas Boston, about this man who worked faithfully uh, in the place that was given to him and yet has left a legacy but because he just wanted to love these people that were in front of them and love them well. I think Augustine, he shows us that same heart that desired uh, to please his own God uh, and yet to do that in a way that, that, has, that has left a legacy, I think, uh, behind him. So with that, um, I'm happy to try to answer any questions that might have come up from uh, the presentation. Well, yeah, uh, JT, where we go? go? You go, you mark. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, you're asking the question, you know, point one, what would it look like to master histories, texts, and stories of the world around us for the sake of communicating the gospel? We already got the Keller video card. Right? <laughs> That's right. Immediately jumped to mind. I'm curious, who else do you think is doing this well mm-hmm. in our day and age that we yeah. look to for contemporary <clears throat> help? Because that is very difficult. That's right. Yes. Um, yes. So I sort of answered that in, in two ways. On the one hand, I think um, obviously Keller, Alan Noble, who I already mentioned, I think Carl Truman's, <coughs> excuse me, Carl Truman's work, uh, I think is helpful to that end in terms of understanding the kind of the ways in which people today think about identity in ways that are, have historically departed from how we thought in ways that are just fundamentally Broken, I think, and malformed. Um, so those would be those are the three examples that come to mind. But the other the other thing that Augustine could help us to do is to do it ourselves. You know, is to pick up the books ourselves uh, and to to read them ourselves and to try to to do it in ways that maybe our neighbors need to hear um, because we know what they're reading and we're reading it yeah, themselves. We know what reading. Yeah. That's so true. So just I want to make a pitch. Something that the, the Presbyterian East, that a group of pastors does, that they invite me is wonderful. Because there's a book club. A group of pastors read a book together, get together on Zoom once a week for an hour, and do, does exactly this. And it has been absolutely phenomenal, not just in building fellowship and dialogue, but there is a constant exposure to different ways of thinking and reading, and then we're batting these things around together. Absolutely, I would definitely echo that. And that reading in community is is usually for me much more helpful than um, reading alone. Don't forget you, Mark. Yeah. Talk a lot about the, the the method of these things, like sort of how uh, Augustine went about uh, understanding and persuading. I'm curious now about the, I guess, the mode of things. So was he primarily carrying this out through? his writings and some sort of public discourse, like Twitter or something? Or was this like over like bread breaking at the table or all those, something other than those? And then how might that look similar or different for our context? That's a good question. Um, So the City of God was sort of published um, over the course of, I think, almost 20 years like serially so like book one and two would come out and then but you know kind of like marvel movies or something like that you know um uh and so i think here's the big here's the here's the challenge which i don't 
um, I mean, it's a pretty fundamental challenge um, that I'm trying to think through as I think through how Augustine has helped with us. Augustine was speaking to a society that had the memory of being pagan, was beyond its, but was on its way to becoming Christian. Uh, and um, so it was not uncommon for, I mean, people, there are records of like in sort of public baths, which were kind of gathering areas for Romans that, hey, book five was just read out while people were sort of hanging out in the public bath. You know, like that's, that was, that's what happened there. I think we are, I mean, again, like I don't, I don't, I'm just, I don't know where it is that we're heading at all. In fact, you know, you, you think about, you know, even a day like today, it, you know, is a day where on the one hand, like I think we certainly feel ourselves moving into sort of a more post-Christian yet a landmark decision by the Supreme Court has taken place, which in many ways is a return to Christian morality as well. So I don't know where it is we're going, but it seems in some ways we are going from a place that was Christian to an increasingly non-Christian place. And so what, is it, what does communication look like? Because I think Augustine was gaining access to the public square. Sometimes it feels like we have less access to the public square, certainly by most major sort of media outlets as well. So I, that's how Augustine did it. I don't know how we'll, we'll do it. Um, that's a good question. Yeah, David. Yeah. Uh, so you have a list, uh, first page, how to understand. Uh, Augustine Master was a student of Roman history, life, narratives, and virtues and vices. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of resistance in the last number of decades to right, the idea of like a Western canon and stuff like that. So we have our virtues and we have our vices and we have our narratives and all that stuff. But what to your mind does it look like to like ingest the narratives that are uh, that are shaping our culture? What are those narratives? Are we now, are we talking about like the 1619 Project, the Federalist Papers, Alexis de Tocqueville? Like, what should we be reading to right. be up on the narratives of our culture and understand it? That's a very good question. Um, and I've thought about it a little bit. I think it's tricky on the one hand because um, like mass culture means that you can less assume like certain common sources of like that people are building their identities off of. And yeah, I think there's gotta be something that's shared underneath that. Um, I mean, I think, again, I, I was sort of default to the kind of work that Carl Truman is doing in that book as kind of helpfully identifying, you know, books that most of most of our us and our neighbors have never read, you know, about Nietzsche or, you know, things, things like that. And yet that has somehow downstream infected all of us. Um, so that would be my best bet on answering that question. Yeah. So I just uh, humbly suggest one resource that's helped me with cultural understanding. That's Ken Myers at Mars Hill. Mm -hmm. You ever heard of Ken Myers? Interviews. Uh, it's you know he had a, have to buy it. It's like a podcast. And he started doing this 25 years ago before podcasts were a thing. But he interviews <laughs> a lot of great cultural thinkers. Uh, Ken Myers and Mars Hill. Yeah, that's a great, that's a fantastic resource, yeah. So you, sp you spent some time talking about how Augustine was attempted to be very persuasive to the pagan culture. What do you make of the fact that he, he really, when he was dealing with the Donatist controversy, didn't do that at all? Like he was even willing to use violence against them. Um, what, what do you make of that and how can we apply yeah. that here or should we, should we apply that? Right, yes. Um, Yes, so 
I'll, I'll say what I what I can say about the Donatist controversy, and, and I'll try not to say much more, is that um, Augustine, he said, he said and thought a couple things about, and sort of changed his mind about a couple things. I think what I can say about Augustine with the Donatist controversy is that he, while he, he did sort of argue for the force of the state to, um, to sort of to protect Christians from sort of roaming bands of Donatists who were enacting violence on other people, um, and in some ways to sort of bring an end to Donatist churches as well. He also, um, when he he sort of he thought about that in ways that um, when so when when sort of Rome decided that Donatism was like a heresy that could be punished by death. He, he actually resisted that. He, he told the Roman Empire, no, like, this, is, this is not my end. I'm not sort of for the, the elimination of Donatists. I'm trying to create peace um, and also to bring them to faith in Christ in ways that, you know, frankly, are just not options for us. Um, I think it's more complicated than that, but I, you know, I think, um, but I think it's a good, a good question, and I don't really have a very good answer. Any, any Um, I'm sure there is, um, but yeah, but I don't, I don't have a good answer right now. Yeah. 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 Okay. It might be too theoretical, but I, it just as I look at Augustine, it sticks in my head. Uh, Mike Williams and Covenant would say, you know, you do thought experiments. He said, so if we're doing a, you know, a guest in movie, would it be Denzel Washington or Brad Pitt? <laughs> <laughs> I always like that. <laughs> in the same way, I mean, uh, you know, we sit down and read Augustine as Western thinkers. Was he a Western thinker or an Eastern thinker, and how does that affect how we read him? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, uh, Augustine, I, th I, I would say Augustine is a Western thinker, uh, mostly because so much of West, like, what Augustine in some ways like had drunk so deeply from Western texts that formed the Roman Empire and things like that. And then just Augustine gave us the categories for, for later Western thought as well. So in many ways, Augustine is a Western thinker because like, he helped form the Western tradition as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that the tricky thing about that is that there's this, um, you know, in... I, I got a PhD in systematic theology, so I always have to like bring something so I can justify the three, four years that I spent in my life doing that. But there's a way in which sometimes we play um, sort of w the Western tradition and the Eastern tradition sort of off of each other. So one of the ways that we do that is we say, well, Western theology thinks that God sort of emphasizes that God is one. You know, with Eastern theologians like Gregory of Nazianzus or other people think that God was three, um, and that there's this tradition that kind of the things kind of divide there. But that that's a thesis that has been you know disproved within the academy for the last like 20 years. And in fact, it's clear that Augustine was conversant with Eastern theologians as well. Um, now, that's not to say that our Eastern Orthodox you know friends do not detest Augustine. Many of them do, um, but that's really comes from his doctrine of sin and not from his understanding of the Trinity as well. But I would say that um, he's Western in that sense, but he's not, you know, not in any like really sort of distinguishing way from some Eastern Christians at least. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Sure, yeah. I know Cloud mentioned Blackberry, so three, tic-tac-toe maybe? I don't know. Yeah. But, so Tim Keller didn't just drop out of the sky. He kind of has grown into his position and sort of earned his place, not only amongst Christians, but also in many ways amongst non-Christians in what he says in his sort of position. How do you think um, Augustine sort of earned his place in the culture and then now looking back in, in history, what, as far as you can tell, has kind of been some of the landmark things that have really led him to earn his spot mm-hmm. of really being worth listening <clears throat> That's a good question. Yeah, I think um, Augustine earned his place um, mostly because he was absolutely brilliant. I mean, he was just a genius. And I think, um, you know, good ideas over time went out. Uh, and so I think he he was able to say things clearly. He, he lived... Um, faithfully. I mean, his brilliance was just noticed very early on. You know, Augustine was conscripted into church leadership. You know, he consciously avoided going to towns where there was no bishop because he thought that he would be forcibly, you know, installed as a bishop. And he had such a high view of the laying on of hands that he thought that once that happens, like, I'm called here. And so um, he thought, so he went to Hippo Regis thinking to himself, well, we've already got a bishop here, so I don't have anything to worry about. But then the bishop <laughs> said, there's Augustine in the back, like, and they brought him forward and they forcibly conscripted him. And he said, he said, I'm the bishop right now, but can we make Augustine the bishop in waiting because like, I'm not going to be around much longer. And so he was just um, one of those people who, who's uh, not just his thought, but I think his character as well sort of gave him a hearing providentially. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to tag on that to, to mention that, right? Augustine, even while he's still alive, very much youthful, he writes very vulnerably about his sins mm-hmm. and his downfall. And so not only is he an intellectual leader, but he is someone who says, I submit all these things to God, and here is what mm-hmm. I call on, which I think puts him ahead and allows him to be a good steward of the gift of intellect. Yeah, that's a good word. Thank you. Yeah. All right, um, we're done. Can I Let ask me, you a question? Yeah, sure. What do you think? Do you think it's good practice for preachers to publish like a retractation story? <laughs> <laughs> all yeah, that'd be great. Sometimes I want to do that for sure. Yeah. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks, Lord, for this time that we've had together. Lord, we do pray, uh, even as we talked about a man who loved you well, we just know he was a sinner. Um, he was not perfect, Lord. And so we would just submit all that we've heard to you, to you uh, against the test of Scripture. Lord, and just pray that you would encourage us, even as we head back to business, even as we head back to our churches, Lord, that you would, be, um, that you would go before us, Lord. Um, and that you would allow what it is that we've done in this time to um, to serve your church and our neighbors, and that we might love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.